0: Good to be with you today. Why don't you grab your notes out of your handout, and you will notice right away we are jumping into continuing a series on the book of Acts. And um, the idea is that this month we would all be reading through the book of Acts. We'd all be kind of journeying together as we go through the days of the very first church this is the, the the very first expression of church as as uh, there was this day of pentecost when the holy spirit of god invaded the lives of the believers and peter went out he preached a message 3000 people were added to the church that day it was a beautiful day it was the start of an of a powerful movement and then uh, what happens next right like the idea is what what do you do after this pinnacle kind of a moment 3,000 added this is such excitement and momentum and then how do you keep that thing going right and just sort of by the way if you have ever tried to start a movement on your own you know this is the critical moment right here Right, It is heck of hard to try to start some kind of a movement. and You might have enough energy, momentum, wherewithal to get something going, but it's that what happens next kind of a thing. Often it's like being a roadie for a one-hit wonder band, right? It's like, really? We're still playing that same song? You know, like, ah... And, and, and so this is, this is a powerful kind of a, mo- a moment because after something beautiful, pinnacle happens in the first century, right, the first expression of church, now we discover if there's anything behind it, right? Be- because this is the moment like, yeah, everything, 3,000, woo, good job, Peter, what are you doing now? I'm going to Disneyland, Yeah, you know, like exciting stuff. But then what happens next? And I just want you to understand that what happens next is as or more powerful because this is not some trick. It's not some carnival sideshow. The power of heaven itself is behind this movement. And Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to build my church. I put these, uh, this on your notes here. It's Matthew 16, 18. It's on the screen as well. These are Jesus' words. He's talking to Peter. He says, now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So Jesus is the one who's building the church. He's talking to Peter. Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. This is the rock I'm going to build on. And then, of course, the very first message that's preached is Peter's message. As the Holy Spirit moves through Peter, Peter proclaims the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He was the one who's crucified, resurrected, and 3,000 enter into belief, trust in Jesus that day. I do want you to note that they have not yet started using the word church. They're not calling it that. They actually identified themselves as people of the way in which they were identifying themselves with Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they were saying, we are in the way. We are following Jesus. And that's, that's what's going on. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see all of these testimonies and stories, ways in which God was empowering uh, the, the movement of the church, the, the people of the way. And there are a couple of passages, kind of broad stroke passages of what is going on. What does it look like to be a part of the church, a part of the way in these early days? We're talking about like the first week. You're talking about the first seven days of this thing. This is what it looks like, okay? Here we are in Acts 2, 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Again, they're on your, on your notes as well. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Excellent. So now what we want to do is we want to get into that passage, sort of break it apart a little bit. As you take a look at those verses, the first thing that I hope just leaps off the page at you is that they are fired up. They are absolutely energized. They are, if you would forgive this Southern California word, they are stoked on the Lord. They are absolutely just just, you know, they aflame with passion. And last week we talked about this picture of enthusiasm. We said it's inevitable that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be enthusiastic because the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, in theos, in God. And the original definition of the word enthusiasm means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I say this because many of us think that the word enthusiastic means cheerleader-like, and that's all we got, right? That's, that's what, and that's not exciting, but I want you to see that the original definition, the, the thing that God wants for us, is that we are fired up for the Lord by the Lord, that we are filled with Him, so we are energized to live our lives with Him and for Him. Okay, second thing that pops out is that this group is hungry for teaching. They are yearning for truth. They are devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, hanging on every word there, eating it up. And specifically, what the apostles are teaching, you might want to write this word down, is Christocentric. What they're doing is they're going back into the Old Testament, that was the Bible that they had, remember they're living the New Testament, So they're living the New Testament, they're studying the Old Testament, and they go back into the Old Testament scriptures, and they're seeing with new eyes that Jesus is everywhere. They're going back and they're studying all the passages that refer to Messiah. And they're seeing that there are hundreds of these passages all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The first time we see reference to. And they're going through the scriptures and they're realizing, oh, Jesus is not an afterthought of God. He's the foundation for this whole thing. God wasn't up in heaven after our human sinned and and wandered away from him. He's going, what do we do? How do we get him back? No, no, no. God knew from the beginning Jesus would be Messiah. He would come. God chose a nation to birth a son to save the world. And all of a sudden, the the scriptures are just becoming alive for them. They, They are just hanging on every word. They cannot get enough of the truth. And I say this because maybe you have experienced being in a season of your life like that. Maybe there was a time, maybe right after you came to faith, where you were so excited, you couldn't wait to find time to pour into Scripture. You're taking your Bible to lunch. Every day you're you're off, you're reading, you're podcasting all kinds of sermons. You, You just cannot get enough of truth because you are so overwhelmed by the thought that the Lord of the universe loves you specifically, that God of all things, the one who made everything God bigger than we can possibly imagine, actually has chosen to love me personally and invest himself into me and cleanse me and forgive me uniquely, knowing everything that I go through, he has now invested himself within me, never leaving me or forsaking me, every step of the way, journeying with me. Just so overwhelmed, you can't get enough of truth. Maybe for some of you, you've gone through difficult seasons of life. Seasons that are really hard to negotiate. Times in which you feel like everything is being stripped away and you have nothing left but God. And in that moment, you realize God is sufficient. And so you are hungry for him. You're hungry for his teaching. Listen, I I recognize some of you might be here. Your passion level might be kind of low. I just want you to understand God knows how we're wired as humans. He understands that our emotions go like this, that on our faith journey, there'll be times that are really high points, times that are low points, you know, high points where we can't get enough, low points where maybe we're just faithful out of duty, maybe we wander away from him, like he knows we go like this. I just wanna assure you, God's passion for you is steadfast. Our passion kinda goes like this. Here's the key question. How do you reinvigorate your passion? When you're low, what does it take for you to step back in, to be re energized, refilled, just re sort of submitted to God's Spirit, re yielding to His love? Like, what's it take for you to get back to that place where you are fired up for God? And here's the answer the answer is what we see in this passage. Because in this passage, we see everyone doing all things together. We see the idea that God had from the very beginning that that our faith journey was not designed for us to live in isolation, but it is a requirement. It is the, the core foundation of this thing is that we're in this together. So that's the thing that jumps off the page as you read through this passage, that everything is together. They're they're listening to teaching together and studying the word together and they're sharing meals together and they're together praising God in the temple courts and they're together with one another in their homes and everything all along the way, they are together in this journey. So here's the challenge. The challenge is when we're low in passion, we feel the least like being together with one another but that's when we have to push ourselves through. Do what we know is good for our heart and soul and be together in community, okay? And I, I'm gonna illustrate this with something. I believe this is a really powerful analogy. I, you, gotta, you gotta stick with me on this one. Um, I, we talked about this with our leaders a couple weeks ago at our one day, but you, get, you gotta track with me on this one, okay? The, the analogy is, are you familiar with the reality, the powerful reality? in the world today known as the 12th man. Do you know this? Okay, all right, maybe there are some here, maybe some watching online from, you know, uh, New Zealand who don't understand what the 12th man is. The 12th man is the name of the Seattle Seahawks fan base, okay, and uh, you guys, everyone's a little timid, that's okay, I get it, you guys are kind of reserved, like, oh, where's he going with this? (laughs) I just hope he's done by one. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to think about this, the 12th man. Now, if you're not a, a sports fan, you, you're thinking to yourself, uh, what's the big deal about the 12th man? So uh, fans, are like, yay, ha, you know, like, what's, what's the big deal? He, he, the question, does the 12th man change anything about the game? Now again, if you're, if you're not a sports fan, you're like, oh, where, this is the, so dumb, I, I can't. But if you understand, so does the 12th man change the atmosphere? Does the 12th man change the outcome? If you go, just statistically speaking, you go over the last three years, you take a look, how do the Seahawks fare when they play in Seattle? Very well. You go around the NFL, you ask, you know, anybody, hey, who's ready to play the Seahawks in Seattle? Who wants that? There we go, not me, you know, like no one. It's it's such a reality that the NFL will not schedule, they hate to schedule the Seahawks at home during prime time because it's bad for their national ratings because nobody in the nation wants to see the Hawks whoop up another team. We love it. But nobody else does. Okay, so you're, you're kind of tracking with me on this, the idea, 12 men. 12 men, there's a mentality. I just want you to see this. 12 men, if you're 12, you show up at the stadium two hours early. You show up not thinking, what is my team gonna do for me? You show up thinking, what can I bring to the team? Here's how we're gonna do this thing. You gotta track with me. I, I promise you, if you track with me, Right now, I promise you, Holy Spirit chills. It's just going to go right up and down. So just follow me on this one. I'm going to ask for three volunteers, okay? Can I, can I ask you? Would you stand up for me? Thanks, Norm. All right. And uh, Shelly, can I get you to stand up for me? Just real quickly. All right. And Scott, do you mind standing up for me? All right. So we're going to do this Say, I'm just going to ask them each. They're going to roar. And just for clarity's sake, just I want you to go roar as loud as you can, okay? But we're going to start with you, Okay. So Norm's going to start, Shelley, once he starts, you join him, and then Scott, you join them, and we're just going to roar. I'll count to three, and you start. Ready? And, and, and again, just for the sake of the analogy, let's just, let's not make a sound while they're roaring, okay? So shh, all right. One, two, three. Roar! Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> stay standing, stay standing, please, please. Guys, that's what it's like playing in Jacksonville right there. That's, that's, that's kind of, sometimes that's what it's like preaching at the 920 service. All right. Now here's, you got to track me. Everyone's got to join me on this one. Okay. So we're going to do exactly the same thing. Scott, then Shelly, or uh, sorry, Norm, then Shelly, then Scott. But when Scott starts to roar, I need every single one of you to stand up and join them roaring as loud as you can. This is an analogy and contrast, okay? Go ahead, put your purse to the side. Oh, my cell phone. I got to put my cell phone up. Okay. All right, here we go. On the count of three, we're going to have Norm start, and then when Scott joins him, everyone stands and roars. So just see how it sounds. Ready? One, two, three. Roar! (laughs) Roar! Did you feel it? The spirit is in the house. I wanna tell you that there is a difference in the atmosphere when three people show up to praise or when everybody shows up to praise. There is a difference in the outcome when three people pray and when everybody's praying, right? There's a difference in, in just in the kingdom bursting forth when three people serve, or when everybody serves, or when three people give, or everybody gives. You can see the contrast, and it's powerful. When you show up to church thinking, what's God gonna do for me, or you show up to think, what can I do for God? That's what was happening in the first church. That's why there was passion. Because they fed off of one another's passion, they encouraged one another. They were together. They were on this journey together. It was overwhelming for all of them, and yet they were firing one another up as they all journeyed together. So overlay, that's where we are. That's, that's the challenge that, that each of us has to go after, because there are uh, some of us, we, we're still holding back. Some of us, we're still kind of withdrawing. we still kinda withdrawing. We think that it's about us and just us alone and it's just my own journey and I wanna tell you from scripture, your passion, what you, can, what you can bring to the table, how your life can be in influencing you know, the atmosphere and the outcome, it's powerful. But we were never designed to do it on our own. Now this is something we get the privilege of doing together, okay. The next thing you see, as you go through this passage, is that they were all in awe. You might want to circle that word, awe. They were all in awe. And the reason why they were in awe is because God is awesome. That's why they were in awe. And I don't mean, it's not like, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of JC. Everything is awesome. No, no, they were floored by God. They were blown away by the movement of the Holy Spirit. They, they, they just, they couldn't even get their minds around the reality that the God who made everything was now invested in their lives and flowing through them and it was just blowing them away. What did Jesus do in his earthly ministry? Jesus' earthly ministry was really simple. It was just marked by a handful of things. He preached the good news, and he healed the sick. He cared for the poor, and those who were in bondage, he set free. What did the disciples do in the first church? They preached good news. They healed the sick. They cared for the poor, and they brought freedom to those who were in bondage. And, and the thought that God would use us In the exact same way, he used Jesus Christ. It just, it floored them. And it was so public, and it was right out there in in the open. And if you keep reading the book of Acts, just after this passage, you go into the next chapter, there's this testimony, a story of how Peter and John are going into the temple. And a bunch of folks are going with them because they did everything together. and They're all going in, and they go in through this gate called the beautiful gate, and there's a guy begging at the gate. He's always been at the gate, years and years and years. He's always, been, Everyone knows. He's a fixture. Hey, Frank, how are you? Here's, you know, a couple of drachma. And uh, they, every day they saw, you know, this guy there. And, and, and as Peter and John walk in, he asks them, hey, can, can I have some money? And Peter's like, oh, bud, I got nothing, you know, a cash-free society. But listen, what I have, I want to give you. It'll be better than cash. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ stand up and walk. And he helps him up. And as he helps him up, his legs become strong. And he doesn't just walk. He begins to leap and run and jump. And the whole time, praising God and clinging to Peter and John. And and so they go into the temple and they begin to preach. Now, they're preaching the same message. They're preaching the gospel, the good news, the Christocentric view of the Old Testament. Jesus is Messiah, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead. But this time, there's this guy next to him, you know, Frank. He's name's not Frank, but it, it, everyone knows him. And, and they know that he used to be a beggar. He used to not be able to walk. And now he's jumping and dancing and praising God. This is a very public miracle. And so on that day, so many more are added to the church, that the, most scholars anticipate this is a tipping point moment because the church went from 3,000 on day one. Now scholars estimate on this day, it, it has, because of the additions, between 7,500 and 10,000 followers of the way. Just boom. This is such a powerful miracle and it's so public. It's not like off in some bunker in the desert somewhere. It's right out in the midst of Everyone. And the question that, that some of us have, well, does God still move in the same way today? Does God still work in the same way today? Is it possible that God could actually heal like he did then now? And the answer to these questions is yes. Yes, God has not changed. Yes, we see that God can move. In fact, I want you to know that, that an Overlake, or a dear friend of mine, he's in school right now, And uh, this week, we got a text from him. So this week, the text that he sent said this. It said, um, I was, uh, let let me find my place here. He said, I was praying for a guy headed to surgery with a misaligned jaw. And as I was praying, it popped. We could both hear it. And suddenly he was healed. No surgery required. A pastor on our staff was ministering overseas, and there was a man that came up to him whose arm could not extend. It was born from birth. He could not use his arm. And uh, the OCC pastor prayed for him, laid his hands on, and instantly he was healed, able, fully functional. A situation that I was a part of, and I, I share this, I've shared it before, but it's really the most powerful experience that, that God's ever invited me into was uh, I was in a hospital room praying for an OCC sister who was going into surgery for cancer. And she had a mass in her abdominal region. I was not alone. There were a couple of other elders there. And so, you know, we we anointed her and, and prayed over her right as she was heading in for the surgery. And they took her into the surgery. And what they did first before they cut her open is they inserted a scope just to make sure they knew exactly where the edge of the tumor was and they couldn't find the edge of the tumor, and it was frustrating to the doctors, and so they did a full body scan, again, before they decided to cut, and as they did the full body scan, they realized there is no tumor where there was a tumor. She was completely healed. And, and I, uh, it's so funny, because they, they call those situations a medical miracle. I just, I love that, the irony, there's nothing medical about it, right? Like, that was God. <laughs> And, and so, um, but just so you know, that, that was about eight years ago, and I just caught up with her here uh, on, because uh, she's moved away, but I caught up with her here in July, and I just, I just asked her, how's your health? How are you doing? She said, Mike, I, I've been cancer-free since that day. So don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't like, uh, go to some uh, you know, kind of crazy cliff on this idea. I just want you to see, does God use medicine? Absolutely. Does God use science? Absolutely. Are there times that maybe God in his wisdom, and in his, you know, he's got a plan, he's rolling out. Maybe there are times when he doesn't heal in this lifetime, and maybe he heals when we stand before Jesus. Absolutely. All those things are true. I just want you to see that the powerful movement of God in the first century is not over. It wasn't like that was one age and we live in another age. It's that the same age that was happening in the first century, that's still what we're a part of today. And the same movement that was going on in the first church, that's what we are a part of today. Over, like We should be excited about putting our hand on someone's shoulder and praying for those who are hurting. We should not be shy about putting our hand on someone's shoulder and praying for healing. We know that we want to bring the will of God. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is no sickness in heaven. There is no cancer in heaven. There there is no hopelessness in heaven. So anytime we're in that situation on earth, we just pray heaven on earth. And we should not be shy about that. We should be emboldened and empowered. And, And I do want you to understand that I recognize the biggest problem we have in the church today The biggest problem Christians have today is to imagine that we actually are like the church in the book of Acts. It's just to actually see ourselves that we are just like the followers of Jesus Christ in the first days. But friends, I know it's bold, but we have a resurrection faith And that kind of audacity, it is what we are required to go after. So I I just want to encourage you, right, that that this is a journey we are all on. We're all in this together. It's a part of our passion, and we want to hold on to these these truths with great boldness. So as as we look at this passage, we see that together... They have great joy, they go after hospitality, they go after mutuality, they go after charity, they go after worship, they go after justice and care for the most vulnerable members among them. And in so many ways, I see Overlake being like that and doing the same things that the first church was doing. And I want you to see that as they were living that lifestyle, this passage also said they had great Favor with the people. So everyone in their neighborhoods was blessed. And everyone in the, the town of Jerusalem was being blessed because the love of God was pouring into believers and then pouring through them so that they could bless their care for their parish and bless their city. And I want you to know that that's what's happening at Overlake. So one of the expressions at Overlake that I am most proud of is the high school that we started in January called Eastside Academy. And it is for those who are the most vulnerable in our midst. It's for those students who for whatever reason, circumstances, history, have not been able to flourish in the regular offerings of education that Washington State provides. And so as a church, we have come around them and tried to bless them. So go ahead and watch this video as it describes what Eastside Academy is all about.
1: Eastside Academy is an alternative high school serving at-risk youth. It is also a place where we serve these youth holistically. So the way we do that, what it means to us is that we build relationships with these students. So whether we are teaching, counseling, mentoring, or even sharing Christ with them, that we do so uh, flowing out of these relationships and building on the relationships that we already have. Eastside Academy has been serving at-risk youth throughout the Puget Sound for 13 years. But at the Overlay campus, we just started in January 2014, and we are into our first full school year. Many of these students come to us with a variety of challenges, ranging from substance abuse and alcohol abuse and use, um, mental health issues, uh, severe trauma and loss. Usually by the time the students and their families have come to Eastside Academy, Uh, we are one of their last options that they have available to them.
2: Hi, I'm Lori. I'm 17. I'm a senior at Eastside Academy. I came to EA because I wasn't doing good in public school, like, and I knew, like, public school wasn't for me. I would barely show up, and if I did show up, I was high. When I first came to Eastside Academy, I didn't like it at all. Like, I didn't like the staff. Every time they said, I'm glad you're here, we really care about you. In my head I was like, no you don't. You don't even know my middle name. You guys don't care about me. Whenever they would talk about God, it just like, I got so annoyed and recovery was so annoying too. And I just had no intentions on changing ever. When I left home, I guess I hit my rock bottom and I, wasn't planning on coming back home at all. But then some of the Eastside Academy staff were like reaching out to me saying, hey, we hope you're safe. If you need a place to stay, if you need food, call us. Like, we'll be here for you. Just please come home. Let us know where you are, let us know that you're safe. So then I realized, hey, I should probably go back. They just love on you so much and they give out so many second chances and they don't want to give up on you. And it's crazy how much they care about you. Now that I'm out of treatment, my outlook on everything else is completely different. I used to say, hey, I don't believe in God, it doesn't exist, but now I go to church all the time. I'm sober, I've been sober for almost three months. I live at the Renew House, I have a completely new set of friends. Like. I have no contact with anybody else, and my relationship with my family has grown immensely. Now that I'm a senior, I am attending math, science, history, all the classes I need to graduate. And I don't care how long or how much work I have to do, but I know I have to graduate from Eastside Academy. And after I graduate, I plan on going to college to be ultrasound technician. Eastside Academy has definitely been a life-changing experience and I really wish I would have heard about it sooner.
3: So the bottom line is Eastside Academy is at the heart of who we are at Overlake. Uh, that's why we wanted Eastside Academy to open a a campus here. That's why we wanted uh, to have a school like this in our building because the mission of Eastside Academy and the mission of Overlake are completely aligned. And as we've gotten to know students like Lori who uh, are are amazing and, and to hear their stories that are amazing and the way that they're working through the deep challenges, the deep brokenness, these things that they're facing on a daily basis, it's been really need to see, even in this first year, the way that they they connect never having been uh, to Overlake before, here they here they come to Eastside Academy, connect here at the school and then hear about, down the hall there's a great student ministry program where they can get involved and uh, and many of them have and, 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 and some of them are, are, are showing up for camps and services and all the different programs that our fantastic student ministries folks have going on so it's, it's it's been awesome to see that when we talk about this idea of blessing my city I can't think of a better way to live that out, to engage with that than engaging with uh, Eastside Academy, finding ways to offer time, to, to, to give resources, money, whatever it is, the opportunities are there. And so this is this is a beautiful way to, to walk with Jesus, to see his love and his life extended to the kids that he's brought to us here through this school. And so find, find that opportunity, find that way and get involved.
0: Overlake, I really am so proud of you for just wrapping your arms around this ministry. I do want you to know that on October 18th, we are going to have a a dinner auction and uh, tonight to to generate support for this incredible ministry. I'd love to have you join me uh, there that night. Eastside Academy has folks in the hallway today uh, answering any questions that you have about not only the ministry, the high school, but also how you can get involved, mentorship and all kinds of things. Let's continue to jump in. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, 37. You're gonna actually find a very similar passion or passage rather to the one we just read. So again, this is broad strokes. This is what the church looked like. And and I want you to even keep in mind that you're talking about the church in its first week or two weeks, right? This is a very young, we're talking about a very baby kind of a movement here. It's just right at the very beginning. Acts 4.32 says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Please circle that phrase. That's powerful. They're one in heart and mind. They're living together. They're on the journey together. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the foundation, He is alive. We serve a risen Lord and Savior. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. okay. So what I want to do right now is I want to give you what are the expressions of this first Holy Spirit-led church. And I want you to see not only, I want this to be encouragement over Lake in how many ways that we're seeing God do the same stuff here, but I also want to bring an encouragement that where we're not yet seeing a great expression that we jump into it, okay? So if you're filling in the blanks, let's just we'll kinda go through it rather quickly. The first one is worship. We see that the first church was filled with worship, praising God both publicly and privately, temple courts, and house to house. At Overlake, we go after something, a phrase called worship first, which means that no matter what's happening in life, no matter what the circumstances or the trial, what the temptation is, if we stumbled, if we're living victoriously, whatever's going on, that we seek to worship first, first in priority, and it's the first thing that we do chronologically. We want to follow the first church in worship. Okay, Second one, fellowship. Fellowship, if that doesn't make much sense to you, you might wanna write down spiritual friendship or spiritual community, that's what fellowship is. And again, we've seen in these passages that they were doing everything together, that they were were encouraging one another in the Lord, taking meals together, they were praying together, shouldering one another's burdens, they were living life together. And I've already argued that this is how we reinvigorate our passion, right? This is how we can work as the body of Christ together. Some of you are thinking, you know, I don't see any life change. Well, then I wanna encourage you, go to Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday and be a part of that community where you see hundreds of lives changing all around you some of you are thinking, you know, Christianity's dead, it's not growing, this is a dying movement, then I encourage you to serve in our student ministries where you will be around hundreds of students and you will see how fired up they are for the Lord and you will know this is just rolling, that the church is alive and well, the church of today, the church of tomorrow, right? God is at work and that's because we wanna break isolation and be in fellowship because when we're in fellowship, we encourage one another. In our faith journey. So worship, fellowship. By the way, how do we do that at Overlake? Life groups is our primary way. We do fellowship at Overlake. That's where we do life together. Support groups, ministry teams, these are all ways. But I want to challenge you, if you're in isolation, jump into a life group. This is your day. Next one, discipleship. They were studying the word. They were intensely interested in a new way to look at scriptures with Jesus at the very center And I want you to think about what was going on, right? You're you're talking about a scenario in which two weeks after the thing launched, there are 10,000 followers of Jesus. So you could just imagine, you know, Peter's got them all in the temple courts. He's like, all right, we need some mentors and disciples. So how many of you have been a follower of Jesus for seven days or more, you know, and like, oh, all right, I need all 2,000 of you to come forward. You're going to be the leaders, you know, like, I mean, it's just this crazy scenario, but it's so new, and, and yet, friends, we have the privilege of walking a road of discipleship today, of really allowing our roots of faith to grow down deep, and, and if you don't know where to start, I want to encourage you to start with rooted 101, right? Just jump in. That's something that's happening this fall. It's a class, but it's, it's a way in which we begin the spiritual formation pathway together. So discipleship, fellowship, worship. The next one's evangelism. They had such intense love for one another, for their neighborhood, for their parish, for their community, for their city, that as they were pouring love out, God added to their numbers daily. The next fill-in is Serving serving. They were meeting the needs that they discovered. As soon as they saw that someone was in need, as soon as they saw a vulnerable family or a vulnerable situation, they were eager to rush to it and begin to meet those needs in love. We call that serving. And if you're here and you have not yet jumped into serving, I just want to encourage you. What, this is so beautiful. Hundreds and hundreds of you are. But I I want to encourage you, if you have not yet jumped in, and one of the ways that I just want to encourage you, very practical, if you go on to OCC.org and you click the Serve button, what comes up is a list of the needs. It's all, and it's not exhaustive, but it's a great way for you just to jump right in and begin to contribute to the kingdom of God as as is expressed here at Overlay Christian Church. The next one is healing and delivering. And... Again, I talked about how there was deep awe as they saw God work in their midst. People were healed. People were delivered, set free. We see that happening today at Overlay Christian Church. And if you have a desire to be a part of that, biblical counseling is a part of that. Celebrate Recovery is a part of that. We've got a powerful prayer ministry called Sozo. That's a part of that as well. But we absolutely believe that God is on the move and he is available to work in our lives today. And the last one is giving and generosity giving and generosity, that we see that because of the work of God in their life, they were not uh, hesitant to share their resources, to share their earthly goods, to not let materialism hold them back, but rather to be a part generously of the kingdom of God so that needs could be met so that the kingdom could go forward. And Overlake, we have a, a ton of folks that are generous. I would just say, if you're here, you look at that list, I, I want to challenge you, where are you holding back? Right. This, is the, this is the challenge because it's all of us together. So where is it that you're holding back? Oh, I'm, I'm into these two things, but, I'm, but I don't do these other things. Uh, these things. These things are good, I think, but these things kind of creep me out. Like, where is it that you're, you're holding back? And I want to just encourage you, jump in. Jump in. I mean, this is a picture of the first church over like you're a picture of a beautiful church but there are some some ways we can grow. I want to conclude with uh, this passage. Again, it's it's right at the end of this. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay. I want you to think about that for a moment. This is a, a, a verse about Joseph who sold a field and gave the money generously. But What I want you to notice is that he's never referred to as Joseph again. He's referred to forever after in the scriptures and throughout history, he's referred to as Barnabas. That's a nickname. Joseph got a nickname from the apostles. It was Barnabas, and that's what they call him forever and ever. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a nickname. I was talking to a couple of folks in between services. seems like nicknames are kind of universal. I had a nickname when I was in elementary school, My baseball coach gave it to me. My nickname was Wheels, Wheels Howerton, because one day in our uh, elementary school baseball game, I was on third base. I stole home, and uh, I was fast, so there you go, Wheels. I don't bring that up, so you'll call me Wheels, by the way. You don't need to. (laughs) Pastor Wheels. Like, no, it it won't offend me, but I don't need that either. Like, I'm not that fast anymore, so don't worry. But it's interesting what a nickname is, right? Often a nickname, sometimes they're kind of mean-spirited, but often a nickname, what it does, identifies some character quality and then brings it to the forefront. And what was happening in Joseph's life is that he's a part of this early church movement and the apostles are looking at this guy and they're realizing everyone he talks to comes away encouraged. People are down, they go talk to to Joseph and all of a sudden they are lifted up. People are comforted. People have courage poured into them that there's this amazing way that he has to lift people so that they can see God. They can recognize God's love and power is right here for them, that he's with them. And, and, And so they're like, you know what he is? He's encouragement incarnate. This guy embodies encouragement. Let's call him Barnabas. That means son of encouragement. Let's call him Barnabas. And so forever after, he's known as the son of encouragement. And every time you read his name in the book of Acts, guess what he's doing? He's encouraging. I love how that happens because I wonder if, if you were to get a nickname from the apostles, what would it be? If I was to get a nickname, I'll tell you what, I'd love it if it was encouragement. I'd love to pour courage into you. I'd love to lift your head so that you can see God is love and grace. He is kindness. I would love for you to be encouraged in the Lord. That would be such a beautiful nickname to receive. What do you think yours would be? What's the character quality that comes out most often in you? Is it what you'd want it to be? See, this reminds me of that line from Dead Poets Society. The great play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Barnabas's was encouragement. That's not a bad verse. What would your verse be? What is it going to be? I'm going to wrap up our time with the words of Jesus. And Jesus is speaking to a church in the book of Revelation And Jesus is talking about a church that's really a pretty good church. So in that sense, it might be a lot like Overlake. They were doing a lot of great things. They had their hand in a lot of great ministries. A lot of good stuff was happening in this church that he's talking to. But he has one thing against them. And I want to close with these words. Jesus says to the church, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Some of your translations say, you've lost your first love. Do you want to know what the first love looks like? Read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. That's what first love looks like for Jesus Christ and for one another. And Overlake, we are going there. But we have to go there together. This is something that we have to do together. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and and let's pray. God, would you continue to stir in us this beautiful picture of the first church so that we might recognize, boldly, audaciously recognize that that day can be this day when we absolutely just jump in to this picture of church that you have for us that we would truly love one another, that we would truly worship you first, that we would reject isolation and we would jump into fellowship, that we would be in community together, growing together, serving together, impacting our world together. And Jesus, we just confess right now, we can't do it on our own. There's no way. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us. We need your spirit to motivate us to action, to motivate us to change, that that we cannot do it on our own strength. And so we simply ask that you would continue your good work in each one of us. Help us step through our comfort zone, help us step through isolation so that we might become that first church that we see in the book of Acts. We love you, Lord. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.